Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 183, and today's guest is Chet Kanogia, founder and CEO of Starry. When I think of Chet, I think of an entrepreneur who is a builder and a massive risk taker. He has a track record of building companies that are completely transforming industries and disrupting the status quo. It's a go big or go home philosophy where the stakes are high and you can't fear taking on the very powerful and established incumbents. In order to build the next generation of transformative companies, we need entrepreneurs like Chet who are up for the challenge and thrive on building real products that solve real problems at scale. His latest company is Starry, which is building a better kind of internet service. When it comes to selecting your internet service provider, most consumers unfortunately don't have a choice. This leads to poor service, bloated pricing plans, and a bad customer service experience. We all know there needs to be a better option, especially if you're a part of the rapidly growing segment of wire cutters. Well, Starry is reinventing everything from the top down with next generation technology and lightning fast internet service. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Chet's foundational years and his first entrepreneurial venture as a teenager, Navic Networks, Chet's first company which transformed the interactive TV ad market and was acquired by Microsoft, the full story behind Aereo, which was bringing over-the-air television on internet-connected devices, plus we discussed the legal battles that took matters all the way to the Supreme Court for this company. A deep dive into the story of Starry and the complexity of building a next-generation internet service provider, advice for founders on attracting the best talent for their teams, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? It is a new feature that gives you access to personalized content and administrative features to manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Chet. Chet, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great. So Chet, we're going to talk a lot about your professional background, which is deep in the world of entrepreneurship. You've started multiple companies, which are, uh, you know, there's a lot to them. And I thought that'd be a good starting point. Um, You know, Starry being the latest, Aereo, Navic Networks. Um, you know, you have, when I think of your name, I think of an entrepreneur that goes after really large and challenging problems to solve. It's not for the faint of heart type of thing. And, um, I was just thinking of, you know, Mark Andreessen wrote a blog post recently about, you know, uh, it's, it's time to build, you know, we're kind of in this pandemic era right now and it's time for the greatest talent to work on the hardest problems that, you know, we're, we're facing here. So when you think of entrepreneurship, like what does that mean to you as far as, you know, when you think of what you want to tackle, uh, you know, going after these really complex, you know, problems? Yeah. I I mean, I have a lot of respect for Mark, but you know, it's uh, amazing that after writing that they invest in some stupid, you know, Chad roulette type of an application. And it's, 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 and I think that's, no, I, I really have a, a, a you know, I, I think it's it's very questionable a lot of these sort of comments and, and you know things that people say, uh, mainly because I think there's a level of corruption of the basic idea of entrepreneurship in our system today. Um, that is, it's kind, you know, it's it's sort of you know, driven by I think seeking efficiency of capital return as opposed to what truly motivates, you know, people to do what we do. Look, I mean, it's, you know, life in, inside a company is a lot easier 
you know, if you're working for a big company and, and you know, you get money and stock options and you get rich and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, in my case, you know, it's, you're perpetually like, you know, two steps away from being insolvent. So it, it's not an easy path. And, and, and really what compels somebody like me, this is just a personal comment, is to make really interesting important things uh, whether they succeed or fail is sort of secondary in my mind but moving the ball forward is really important obviously i don't you know want to fail nobody does but it's it's a worthwhile risk and, and largely because uh there are two very important things to me number one i hate authority uh and i can't stand you know people especially people i don't necessarily respect or, or think of as as you know contributing members of society uh, lecturing me. Uh, and second is I like to make things that people find joy and value out of. And um, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. But uh, yeah, I, I find this current climate, and in fact, this is not a new thing. I mean, this has been, I mean, the, you know, you've had, you have these incredibly valuable companies financially, like, you know, Facebook, that I'm not sure what world they're, what, what are they moving forward in the world? Or, you know, most of software technology is about driving efficiency and deflating value out of the system as opposed to creating value, right? And, and it's basically a reallocation of value that gets into the hands of certain class of people as opposed to moving society forward. I mean, you know, probably the, the people that I respect the most and in, in leave politics or controversy aside, you know, guys like Elon who actually make real shit and that's hard to make and, and it's... It's going to move the world forward, and whether it's an electric car or space exploration, these are hard problems. These problems have never been solved by in modern day by, you know, individual type companies, and uh, you know, it's, it's that's remarkable, that's interesting, that's valuable. You know, making another application that has filters is like bullshit. And I mean, you look at even you know all this like you know shared economy junk that we've had right and you've got uber and airbnb all of these companies that have fundamentally no value right because they're essentially brokers and you know i come from india where the hierarchy is so clear and or at least in my day it was very clear that when you you were a different individual when you made something versus if you were just a broker and there's a bit in, in the u.s for some reason it's it's upside down right brokers make the most money and are respected more i don't know why versus people who make reels and uh, you know art dealers make more money than the artists do film distributors make more money than the, the person who created the script so there's something fundamentally wrong and i think that sorry pet peeve on, on some of these things yeah well, that's <laughs> interesting data point that, that that's so true i didn't even think of like the you know marketplaces are the ones that have these high valuations and it's you know double-sided marketplace but but they don't in the sense of you look at today what's going on right, and you, right. You know, uber sort of in free fall or, or left or airbnb and all these things why because they're they're not they're fragile businesses Ad supported businesses, similar, right? It, it's, it's, that's why, you know, something like Netflix, I have a lot of respect for, which is, has never bowed for down to, you know, let's put advertising in to make a few extra bucks or has created an ecosystem where creators have access to a large distribution platform where they can make really interesting, diverse content. And they're not driven by, you know, the old studio tentpole only mentality. Um, you know, that's admirable, right? I mean, that's, that's interesting. 
Well, let's talk about your background. So you alluded to it a little bit, but so where, where did you grow up? You know, what were you like as a child? Were you this same type of, you know, anti-establishment, anti-authority? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was born in a small town, small by Indian standards and population, three or 4 million people. So it's, it's all relative, I suppose, uh, called Bhopal, which is being in the center of the country. Uh, and actually had an incredibly devastating um, you know, chemical disaster there in the 80s. And I was a young teenager at that point. Uh, some very early on in India, it's, you, know, you, you really have to pick your trajectory, just, or it used to be, I think things are changing now, where um, if, you were, if you wanted to have access to great education, which was government supplied, it was a test-in system. And so you basically just, you know, worked like a dog to test into the schools that you want to get into and engineering and medicine were like the two sort of it's a very you know i will say highly influenced by the soviet system back then so it was technocrats were valued right even the administrators were technocrats at the end of the day and um so yeah that yeah so I was, even as a kid it was uh, really important for me to be part of that sort of elite group um, and then work my way into that. I was lucky. I was, you know, from a family where we traveled quite a bit. My father used to work overseas as well. So I spent time in the U S and in the UK and, um, Jamaica and, you know, all kinds of different places. And, and so it gave me a, a really diverse sort of view and, and made me much more, I guess, open to, you know, different norms and different ways of life and, and broaden my horizons quite a bit. So when I, um, yeah, throughout as, as a kid, I was very focused on making things, doing things. You know, I, you know, when I was like probably early teens or mid teens, I was I used to assemble um, amplifiers, you know, audio amps uh, and bookshelf speakers. I saw that. So you actually started a business building speakers. Yeah, bookshelf speakers. Yeah. You know, simple feed network and and uh, decent quality. You know speaker set for you know probably 200 rupees and uh, yeah about that 200 250 rupees which would be back then about 10 bucks so it was a good niche little business so a lot of like like you see the bluetooth speakers so i'm envisioning something like that no bookshelf speakers so about that oh got yeah. it okay very cool because in india back then there was uh, a lot of import restrictions because the okay. government has this policy of, hey, you know, we want to build the Indian economy, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, again, very pro-Soviet style stuff that used to go on. So, you, you know, to import a Sony boombox, you had to be a wealthy individual to do that. Because there was 600%, you know, import taxes and all kinds of stuff. So. And you did go on to study engineering. And then, yes. so mechanical engineer at first, but then uh, ended up in computer systems engineering. Right, that's right. Uh, mechanical engineering, because that's all I was good enough for to test in. <laughs> uh, so the way it works is you get a score, and depending on the score, you are eligible for a certain discipline in a certain campus versus a certain discipline in a different, different campus. So if I'd chosen a lower campus, I could have probably gotten an electrical engineering, mm -hmm. uh, but probably not computer science. My score wasn't good enough. Um, and if I'd chosen a more better rated campus, I would have been in civil engineering, which is the hierarchy was software, electronics, electrical. Electrical was all power systems. Electronics was all digital logic stuff. 
then mechanical, then civil or chemical were interchangeable, uh, and then architecture. So it was like a matrix of, right, and, and you basically build out a matrix and you say, okay, if I wanted to end up in graduate school, let's say with computer science or computer engineering, uh, I was going to go down the mechanical engineering route because the first three years of coursework is, encompasses everything. Mm-hmm. And so you get the foundations, but you think you'll score better. So that may means you'll have a good option for a scholarship in the U.S. So it's a whole calculus that you have to do in 9th, 10th, 11th grade to to map this out. Yeah, you have to think ahead of kind of where you want your future to be. And and at the, so you did end up you know studying at Northeastern. Right. And you were studying like, so you were early in, in the consumer commercial applications of AI. So, so what were you working on then? It was not commercial app, consumer. It was commercial applications. So commercial it was applications. Uh, a lot yeah. of work uh, in case-based reasoning for uh, automated design tools. So if you wanted to design a gearbox, right. And you could just basically say, Hey, you know, this is the total reduction ratio I'm looking for. This is these are the torque characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. And instead of logic to design, you had an, a vast library of cases that you can match pre-existing. And then there was a lot of work in that in natural language recognition as well at that point. And um, this is in the mid '90s. So, yeah. so what did you do after after school? Uh, I left and I went to work for. Um, family slash friends company in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it was a cement manufacturer and cement packager and reseller. A cement, not concrete. I have to point the difference out to most people. Um, so it's, it's the powder that goes into making concrete. And back then there was a lot of construction in particular in, in uh, hostile environmental conditions, high sulfate content, um, you know, for bridges, pilings, those kinds of things, or lining of oil pipelines so that the crude oil wouldn't erode the insides of the pipelines. So I did that for a year, a little over a year, and uh, it was miserable uh, because you were living in the middle of a desert, uh, literally in the middle of the desert. It was about 200 miles, 150 miles from Al Khobar, which was the eastern seaboard. And with, you know, 3,000 other dudes, uh, not a woman in sight, and uh, no alcohol, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, you had a fancy car, but that was it, and you couldn't go anywhere. Right. Um, so I decided to get out, you know, uh, I called my advisor from Northeastern. I said, yeah, you were right. You got to get me out of here. And uh, so they did. They, you know, got me back on my scholarship and uh, got all the visa and all that stuff taken care of, and I bailed out. Came back here, started a PhD. And then two years in, realized that that was my heart was not in it. And um, initially, I thought I wanted to teach, I wanted to be a professor, but then realized that, you know, most of that is, you know, chasing grants and doing paperwork and not making things. And making things is something that's important to me. It sort of manifests, you know, like becomes real. And um, so, so I went, uh, a student of mine, I, I used to teach a course and she was working at a small product development company in Cambridge. Um, and she's like, you know, in the summer, if you're free, just come hang out with us and, you know, be part of our brainstorming sessions. And and I was 23-ish at this point, I want to say. And so I did. One summer I hung out uh, and, um, and I think it 
realized that this was a lot of fun because you were I was working on you know brainstorming for how to make ice cream smoother um so you know how to how to do crystal structures in in ice creams that would be more rounder and it'd be you know the mouth feel would be really good versus there would be some medical device that or it would be a digital camera and uh, this was a great it was like one of the incredible companies that you know was a professional services shop so the business model was a shitty one Mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't control any of the intellectual property they would get hired by companies like polaroid or nike or you know keurig the coffee machine i designed the innards of that at one point you did yeah wow so so they would get brought in to fix problems in these Mm -hmm. kind of like ideo exactly it was a more engineering version of ideo ideo was more packaging and design and this was much more the guts of, of whatever machine it was um and it was an incredible experience and it was one of the smartest groups of people you know they were all vast majority xmit and um you know very analytical and and you learned how to make a product and you know in a given pro time you were working on three or different programs and um, you worked like a dog because it was a billable hours lawyer type of business model so you know the goal was you got to build 2000 hours whatever it is and so it was 60 80 hour weeks grinding away but you you made stuff and you took it from an idea to a pre-production machine and it could be a diagnostic piece of gear or it could be you know cushion lining for nike or it could be polaroids digital camera or it could be and these are all real programs we worked on you know IndyCar pop-off valves or, and uh, ice cream machines. Literally, that was my biggest program was an ice cream machine to make it smooth and creamy. Uh, and they'd have all these guys from you know General Foods, General Mills would come in and test it and tell you it was not smooth or it was not creamy or whatever it was. And, and so it was just a fascinating place. And, and the purpose I went there was because I wanted to learn how to make things and, and get disciplined about it and really learn the product development process. So in late, in 99, then I decided that I was going to get leave and uh, start my own company. And so I did. So, so how did you come up with the idea then for, for Navic Networks? That was a stupid path as well. Uh, we, we were working with, uh, I had a few couple of friends. There was a company in Boston called Zionix Document Technologies that were making ASICs for uh, printers, for multifunction printers, which was print scan and and the problem was the business was really terrible because, you know, it was a $20 chip or whatever it was, but all the profit was in the ink. Mm-hmm. So they had taken it public back then when you had 10 million in revenue, you could go public and a bunch of local VCs were investors, Rich Damore, you know, from, that's how I met him first. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on the board and an investor and another old mentor was the CEO. And I had a couple of friends that worked there as well. And that's how they brought us in. And, the idea was that they wanted to convert the company into a newspaper delivery machine. So if you had a printer, they would aggregate news and print it out. And it was like, would be AOL sponsored. By then the mayhem of internet 1.0 was fully upon us where everything was getting .com. And so the idea was home delivery of newspaper uh, on, demand, on in the morning. And uh, so we started looking at connection protocols and decided that that was you know it was a synchronizing event on a network that is fundamentally designed for asynchronous connectivity so that you don't have peak congestion and so we came up with a protocol and i decided well you know if this protocol makes sense in a pot space connection model which is what it was it was a dial-up kind of a model back then 
but if millions and millions of things were going to connect connect to the internet, this is like way ahead of my, you know, today IoT, right? And then these networks are going to get congested and they're going to need some kind of a traffic management system for these things. So we created the protocol, which was a traffic management system, and then realized that this world of connected devices had not descended upon us yet. But the one world that had descended upon us was digital cable. Mm-hmm. And there were millions and millions of cable boxes that needed orchestration of software distribution, needed return channel aggregation, needed lots of different things for sort of the next layer of applications. And so that's kind of where I started. And it was basically a protocol idea that we prototyped on a cable box and then called cold called AT&T cable at that point. And they were like, you know, back then people were just, you know, this is 2000 and, you know, you could get the call through, right? So I, I think I called Leo Henry and, said, hey, we were doing this. You guys just did this thing with Windows, with Microsoft CE. So we think this idea makes sense. They were like, yeah, 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 it makes sense. Go talk to this guy, Tony Warner. He's our CTO. So Tony and I sort of became friends, and, and they gave me a little contract to go sort of prototype all this stuff and, and put it on their box. And that became the start of Africa. Wow. That's a great story. And so, yeah, I couldn't, you know, this is 2000, so couldn't raise money. I was a first-time entrepreneur. Um, you know, all the, you know, pets.com and all that stuff was sucking all the venture capital out of the world. Yep. And people would look at me and say, what the hell are you doing with this whole cable thing? You know, this is monopolistic companies, which they were right. It was like a, you know, bad business to go into. But we somehow convinced all the cable guys. And I think Time Warner was a big customer then. And so was Charter and uh, you know, Delphi and some of the little ones as well. Comcast was never, um, became a customer of ours. And then, we built that business up and realized that, uh, you know, we had four customers, period. And basically, depending on which side of the bed they woke up on, my life was miserable or great. We had a great business model because we got seven cents a set-top a month or three cents a set-top a month. It was like a recurring kind of a thing. And we were the NASP, so we ran our own data centers and provided all these services, kind of like in a SaaS model sort of way. But couldn't figure out how to, you know, grow the business. I think we were doing probably 10, 12 million in revenue. Or, uh, actually, it was a funny situation where we couldn't recognize any of the revenue. So there were years where we would do 10 million in free cash flow and of a million in revenue because, because we had all these deferred contracts. So from a recognition perspective, we were stuck in, in that mode. But then we, I had sort of this great epiphany. I was like, look, I mean, if we can use, build tools to look at all the data that, we, that is getting, getting collected by this technology, and build a forecasting system to price spot advertising media in a dynamic way, that could be really interesting. Uh, And that was aligned with the cable guys because they wanted to get the the price of their local spots higher, sell better packages against broadcasters. And, um, you know, we got a new revenue stream and we got front end with the advertisers so they could, you know, we built the hooks deeper, if you will. And so that led to Google and Microsoft both wanting to enter the television advertising tools business. And Google, you know, we had a discussion with them to acquire the company, couldn't agree on it. And then about a year and a half later, Microsoft ended up, a year later, Microsoft ended up acquiring Quantiv, which was Atlas, the ad server. And those guys decided that then the next edition for them was television. And, and so they ended up acquiring the company. The, the technology you were building was very disruptive. You talked about kind of the ad piece, but there was also, you know, internet, tele, like it was, you were selling like internet 
like you, you're doing e-commerce through the t- television back then, right. which that wasn't happening. You know, so this was like totally disruptive of, you know, so was, were the cable company seeing benefit from that? Was it too early to start doing that where you're actually, you know? No, we, we, I think most of we, I forget the stats now, but any local system we were working with, he was seeing probably 22 to 27 bucks of free cash flow a year per subscriber. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, in, in cable can be a meaningful number, obviously, because you're creating multiples are, you know, 10, 12 times free cash flow or 14 times free cash flow, depending on kind of how, you, you know, so, so it, was, yeah, it was a pretty positive unit economic model. And uh, the ones that we worked with, they loved it and, and you know, still great friends, a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, and then ended up at Microsoft for a couple of years uh, and then decided to start Aerial. So area, let's let's talk about that. How did you decide to pursue that business? Basically, the view was, look, disaggregation of this video bundle is a really big, interesting thing to do, mainly because if you can disaggregate it, you have opportunities to repackage it in different ways, create different segments of desire for people. And ultimately, what I really wanted to do was use that platform and open it up to creators of all kinds to create new and different types of content, which is why Diller then got involved because they had Vimeo and his background, obviously from, from media entertainment days. And it made a lot of sense. And because we all knew looking at the data, the anchor, the underpinning of this entire thing was broadcast and it was really basically sports and, you know, really going out and buying sports rights. I mean, nobody has enough money to do that anymore. Right. I mean, even, you know, it's spread out across all the networks. And then, so the idea was, look, look, broadcast is free to air. So let's create some technology that a customer can get that easily in a more modern fashion on, on you know, smart TVs and tablets, or whatever they're used to watching it, content and now. And then we'll, we'll open up the platform for others to create more content. On. And that was kind of the, the basic idea. So how'd you get things going? So like, I mean, cause this is obviously like the birth of the cord cutters, right? This was kind of just starting to yeah, happen. Right? We started the thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it was a mini TV antenna, right? It was the tech that actually pulled the TV from the internet like that. From the air. Yeah. 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 So, you know, broadcasters broadcast in the air, mm-hmm. right? If you have an antenna, you can pick it up. And so the, the problem with those television antennas is number one, there's a lot of interference, especially in urban areas where you have urban canyons. So multipath resolution isn't really great on those things. Second, it's a bigger device. So it's unwieldy. Third is if you live in an apartment building, you know, you got to go convince your landlord, et cetera, et cetera. So we said, why don't we create a system where everybody can have their own antenna and it'll be just in one central location. Mm-hmm. So it'll receive, transcode it, so you can watch it on an online device. So it's pretty simple. A lot of technology involved in doing it at low cost because you have to first develop this whole antenna technology plus tuners and all this other junk that we did. Second, it's over-the-air broadcast is MPEG-2. Uh, and so we have to translate it in, into MPEG-4 because MPEG-2 was much heavier from a transmission perspective from a overall size of the stream. So an MPEG-2 stream of HD will be like 19 megabits a second versus with 264, which is... MPEG-4 would be three and a half megabits a second at very high quality. So that translation process was incredibly expensive. So when we started, 
a transcoder was about four thousand bucks or two and a half thousand, three thousand dollars of transcoder from MPEG two to MPEG four, multi-rate slash multi-profile. Because as your bandwidth compresses, you've got to be able to drop down from HD to 720 to 480, right? Uh, different types of resolutions. And when we implemented our transcoder, which was all sort of single chip-based device stuff, it was down to the entire CapEx for a customer, the entire chain, we could do it for about $35. Mm -hmm. So it was a huge technical sort of lift in, in solving those problems. Network DVR technology to be able to do that in a centralized location so you could record content, again, in a huge feed. In fact, by the time we shut the company down, I think we were the largest transcoding fabric in the world where we could do millions of simultaneous uh, transcodes at any given time. Um, and, you know, the area was fascinating because from start to finish, it was about three and a half years of which the first 14 months was technology development. But it was software, hardware, data center type implementation, switching, did all that implementation, and in 18 months from start to finish throughout the core process. And so it was kind of fascinating learning exercise. What was the pitch to the, to the investors? Because you had IAC, like Barry Diller's company, and Highland Capital, and, and other investors. So what was the pitch? Because you know, traditionally, venture capitalists like to hear big, bold ideas, but there's also probably some strings attached because we're going to have, you know, broadcasters that might not like what we're doing. So what was that like? No, no. So the pitch was basically, look, we'll, we'll, we're going to transform the entire television entertainment distribution system. And with a very unique technological approach, which had intellectual property associated with it. And you could, a company that could be worth probably 10 to $15 billion within five years, or, it could easily lose $150 million and be shut down. So are you willing to make that trade? And so bet what you think you're comfortable going down to zero for. And so I raised my hand. I said, in half a million, a million, I forget, or a couple million dollars. I said, you know, I'll put that in on my side. And so, so assume that it's a zero, but there is a 50-50 shot that it's 10 to $15 billion because all of the retransmission value that gets distributed to broadcasters would likely get re-arbitraged towards us. And so that was really, it was a straightforward pitch. They were getting, you know, three bucks a sub or two bucks a sub. Well, back then it was like $2 a sub and retrans fees. Now it's, you know, three or four, I forget the numbers. So, you know, if you did the math backwards and you said, you know, 30, 40 million consumers you could pick up at, you know, a wholesale cost of near zero, whereas retail cost is about 12 bucks. And so what's that worth, right? So, so it, was, it was actually a pretty straightforward pitch. Yeah, well, and then obviously, uh, you, you know, you built the technology, you grew subscriber base. I, I saw at one point it was reported at 80,000. I don't know if that's the la last number, but obviously. No, it was about 700,000 users. 700,000, uh, wow. Of which a quarter million were paying and the rest was in either free trials or different other states. We used to also have different types of programs. Oh, this, this thing was a rocket ship. Yeah. It scared the daylights out of people. Well, so then, then what, <laughs> so at what point did, um, you know, the, the court filing start to, to happen? So, you know, we expected a copyright challenge and that was, you know, the technology was very purposefully designed to avoid that. And, um, so we, I think we got sued in like the beginning of 2012 uh, in, the, in the district court in, in Manhattan. And uh, we won that. 
then we got sued and then they took the to the appellate court um we won that then we started in boston they sued us here we won that um and we were likely going to win the appellate court here as well and that's when these new york case had made it to the supreme court and um so you know so they just kept appealing and it was obvious that if they lost in the Supreme Court, they were going to go to Congress. That was going to be the next step. So what was it like building a company, scaling it, but also having to you know, deal with all these legal challenges? I mean, this isn't, you know, I'm sure it must have been incredibly draining as well as just incredibly time consuming. Yeah, but that was the company. That was the whole point mm-hmm. of it. So take down, take down the establishment. Not necessarily the establishment, take it down. I mean, people misunderstand that as, as, you know, there are creators. I mean, this is where it goes back to the middleman broker kind of a thing, right? Uh, people that create shows were going to be unaffected. They were going to get, you know, a new distribution methodology out there. New people that create shows were going to emerge. And um, people who wanted the cable TV bundle were still going to have the cable TV bundle from the cable company because we were only facilitating access to broadcast. And so the world was, it was not about taking it down. It was about sort of modernizing it so that, you know, I don't have to get stuck with dealing with Comcast only, or I don't have to get stuck dealing with, you know, some other shitty cable company that has horrible customer service and a terrible user interface. And I know that terrible user interface is not going to get any better because they've killed the entire vendor ecosystem because they're monopolistic companies that extract every ounce of value so creativity is gone so i'm fine with that because i can go do something else but i'm stuck at home as a consumer dealing with the same old shit day in and day out and that was sort of on the unacceptable line for me so it was as much as we made it so that we would like use it and so that's why the design was what it was and, and that's why we didn't start with a traditional grid guide thing it was a magazine layout on an ipad because that's how i wanted to use it and yeah, it was, it was not about taking and it was like, come on, enough already. Let's get on to the next century here in terms of what a consumer experience should be. I should be able to take a snippet of that show that I really, really like and text it to a friend. Why can't I do that? Because that's kind of how I interact with people, right? I mean, that's how I can, I still don't understand why it's, it's you know, why hide content? The whole point of fucking content is to put it in front of people, not, not restrict them. Everybody's happy to pay. If you said to me, Look, you can cut and snip a snippet, but it's a fifty cent a snippet that you gotta pay, and it's gonna come out of your Apple Wallet. Sure, whatever. You know, I'll get a laugh out of it with a friend. I mean, which is what I do with emoji now, right? Or a GIF or whatever it is. Do you think that's why you know I have two teenage daughters, you know, fourteen and sixteen, and that's you know they just watch YouTube and you know that's their content that that's exactly right. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, if you wanted to watch a football game with four buddies, I don't watch football, but if I wanted to watch it. Uh, today, there's no online collaborative way of watching it, or you can't talk trash to your friends while you're watching it or, or bet on it, right? And all, all of the things that we do in like four different other channels, there's no simple way of doing it, which that was the point of area was to like break all those silos down and make it available on an A in a you know, completely modernized sort of experience. Well, I, I want to move on to Starry, but one question before I do that. So, you know, uh, cord cutters right now, they've unbundled all these different 
content platforms. Now it's almost a disaster because you've got all these, you know, the Disney's and ESPN Plus and Hulu and Netflix and, you know, there's a whole mirage of others. So now it's almost like if you want access to content, you have to subscribe. If you want Reese Witherspoon's TV series on Hulu, uh, Apple Plus or, um, you know, HBO, right? There's three different... These guys are their own worst. I, right? It just seems like a really mess. Are. mess again. Absolute mess. You know, so they saw Netflix, good idea. They tried to copy it with Hulu. They got a great guy in Jason to do it. Then they bungled that because they couldn't agree on anything. And, you know, they were protecting their legacy media, you know, sort of distribution channels and revenue streams and, and all this other stuff. And at the end of the day, who's going to win this is going to be Netflix because they have a singular purpose, a clear focus, great leadership who has conviction in their ideas and a clean and simple interface in, in relationship with the consumer. No bullshit, right? And and the next is, I think, going to be Apple TV. And, and I think people aren't quite there yet, but I bet that Apple TV is going, to, is going to be the replacement for HBO because if you look at the high curated content that they're making, mm-hmm. it's really spectacular stuff. I don't know if you've seen any of their shows, the originals on there or not. I, I have. I watched the, uh, the morning show. Um, it was amazing. The morning show was great. Uh, there was a great series on immigration that was there. It was really, I mean, unbelievable. Of all these different people that have come to this country and different stories from Africa and India and China and all these. Um, and, and even the, the Boston-based one that's on now with the Captain America guy, what's his name? Chris Evans. Okay. It's, it's set in Newton, actually, of a, you know, a child killing somebody. Or I won't give away the, the plot here, but, but it's fantastic. It's just fabulous yeah. stuff. And I think those are the two bets. Uh, and Amazon will continue to do what they're doing. Um, but it feels a little secondary. And, and um, yeah, and then HBO will dwindle and go away because it's a conglomerate. Mm-hmm. It's going to be required to feed all kinds of other mouths. Well, the good news for consumers, it is a golden era of uh, television. There's so much great content out there right now. It really is. Well, let's talk about Starry. So this is uh, another disruptive company. So uh, that you know, also catering to cord cutters because I just know you know people that want to cut the cord, they still have to rely on Comcast or Verizon or one provider, maybe two providers in their market for the internet service to stream, you know, their their television. So largely one provider, but seventy seven percent of the country only has one broadband provider, one and a half you know, because the other party is DSL and maybe it's some upgraded version of DSL, but it's large DSL. So, yeah. yeah. And even if you have to, it's a game, you know, you're leveraging Comcast and Verizon. It's pretty much just a game between the two. So, I mean, you know, just getting on the phone with them is, you know, a dreadful experience. I mean, I, uh, where I live in Boston, I don't have Starry out there and it is, it's, it's, you know, whenever you want to get pick up the phone it's like you dread you you know you go and have an extra shot of tequila before you call these guys because it's you have to yell at them because you know the escalation path is if you keep threatening to cancel and yada 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 and then you get to the retention guy and then the retention guy does whatever you want him to do right totally and even then it's like ma'am i don't watch tv i I don't want the tv i just want internet but it's a great value oh okay, it may be, but I don't want it. I don't watch this. So it was like, nope, that's the only way you're going to get it. So. Well, so talk about Starry. So what are you, what are you guys doing? So the, the, the 
idea behind Starry was uh, to provide a alternative internet service provider. Um, and historically, it's been really, really hard to do that just because there were two large barriers. Number one was the video bundle was very sticky for consumers. Cord cutting hadn't sort of the, the golden pen, you know, era that you just described didn't exist three years ago. And the second is the cost of constructing the network is incredibly expensive if you do a wireline overbuild. It's slow and expensive, and they can see you coming a mile away. So they can basically just go and predatorially price you out, right? So they'll go, they see you on this street trying to construct. They'll go and offer everybody in that on that street $39 three-year lockup, right? So those kinds mm-hmm. of things. So we said, look, the video story is happening, whether we kind of lit the fuse, but it's going to continue to develop and gather steam. So let's focus on solving the cost of building the network. And uh, Joe, my my partner, Joe and I, you know, we sort of, we're engineers at heart. So we kind of tinker and tool around and, and basically concluded as early as about 2012, because we were looking at acquiring something in 2012. Uh, that fault ultimately a lot of cheap computational power is now available so you can do very advanced signal processing techniques at low cost and and those techniques are necessary because to be able to use large swaths of spectrum airwaves to be able to do high capacity networks essentially replicate what happens in the coax wire in the air and 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 that's really sort of the foundational idea behind Starry was if you can lower the cost of building a network by a hundred, you've got a shot at overbuilding in a more cost-effective manner where they can't see you coming, the video bundle's gone, your cost structure is attractive enough where you could even have 3%, 5%, 10% of the market and then we have a very successful, profitable company. So number one. Second, we have sort of a core belief that connectivity is going to be the next utility just you know banking if you want to do it you need connectivity at home distance learning was going to be a part of it if you work from home a day or two a week or or so corporate style connectivity in residences is going to be more and more important and so that was kind of the, those foundation i mean COVID sort of accelerated that if you will uh but the the trends were already there and there is a reason why a lot of knowledge workers could transition to work from home quite easily is because those tools and capabilities were were now out there. So, so that story was is the idea to become sort of the the, the big third nationwide provider for high capacity internet access. And um, so, you know, it took us we're five years old. It took us about three three and a half to solve all the really hard technical challenges that we had. Like building a router, right? Like, I mean, no, that was the easy part. Those, those are easy challenges. The, the the core fundamental challenge is we're using very high frequency spectrum, you know, 24, 37 gigahertz. And those airwaves don't go very far from your transmit point mm-hmm. um, because weather, foliage, all kinds of different factors affect them. The lower frequencies aren't really available because they're largely the domain of mobile phones. Uh, and, you know, you, they're just, too much money to, to acquire them, uh, simply put. Uh, you know, look at Dish Network, they hold about 90 megahertz, 100, 100, 150, I forget the exact number of megahertz they own. And, you know, it's $50 billion, right, or whatever the number is. So it's, it's just not enough available. Uh, 
so to really how to solve, use those airwaves in a manner that becomes economically viable is sort of a core heart challenge. And that took us about three and a half years to, to really kind of solve it. And then, you know, we're still in the cost, you know, we're still continuously reducing the cost of our devices and terminals and things like that. And then we had to, you know, work with the government to get access to some spectrum. Then there was an, an auction that we participated in to acquire more spectrum in which we have now about spectrum in 110 cities. So there's a lot of sort of foundational grindy work that had to go in along with technology development, along with proving out the unit economics to say, hey, does a customer want it? What are they willing to pay for it? Can you provide the service in an effective manner? Are they gonna be happy with it? Can you keep your brand promise? Can you also implement the societal impact that you want, which is low income, access to low income housing and, and various different things like that? form an ecosystem partnerships. Yeah, this is, in, in the scale of ambition, this thing is like, you know, and complexity, it's about 100 times more than what area was. And area was about 100 times more complex than what Navic was. So the, the good news is it's defensible. It's not like you're gonna have a lot of competition chipping away at your heels, but obviously, you know, you have to build out this foundation for Starry to be able to, you know, bring it service. Right. Yeah, this is not a Fred in the Shed business, as I call them. You know, a lot of sort of uh, people that are, you know, you, you need access to very difficult technology. I mean, this is down to, I mean, we design our own chips, for example. You know, we make our own equipment. You need access to licensed spectrum, which you can only get through auctions or secondary market. So this is not like, you know, two bros in the valley that are going to, read in recent's memo and like try to disrupt this shit, right? It just, it's no, just disrupt the internet, how it's delivered to consumers. <laughs> right. Where's the company today? Uh, so we are in active in five cities. Uh, we are actively planning in another eight or 10 cities of rollout. Uh, we are 650, 680 employees, somewhere in that range. What else? We've raised $370 million. Um, We'll probably end up raising another few hundred million to kind of get to the next stage of the company. Uh, you know, last year we grew at about 22% a month in subscribers and revenue. Last year was the first year that we actually had a commercial product, like a product actually in front of consumers. Uh, despite COVID, we are continuing to grow at probably like, you know, 10, 12% a month today. You know, really solid customer base that likes what we're doing, very responsive very fortunate to have great investors that have the wherewithal to be part of something like this. Um, yeah, really, really incredible people team. I mean, this, at the end of the day, it's, you know, two joys truly tend to be for somebody like me or like you made something and people like it and you made something with people you really like working with uh, because we've all worked with assholes and it's just like, you know, not enough time in the day to kind of have that, added, you know, these businesses are hard enough. And, and all startups are just incredibly hard, don't get me away. Even if it's an app, it's really hard to do. Um, but this is incredibly much harder. And to do it with, you know, with people is, do it with the right people is the most important thing. So like, what do you think timing is? Maybe you don't have an answer to this, but like, so if you're in the suburbs, like when do you think consumers will have access to Starry in, in the burbs outside of major metropolitan areas? Depends which markets you are in. This is still a, 
we are exponentially faster in building the network than any wireline would be, but it's still building a network. Right. And we're building a network on a shoestring, uh, you know, $350 million for sort of Verizon or somebody else like that is like, you know, jet fuel money, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so doing it on our budget as, but I do think we're coming up to the point where this year we will end at about four, four and a half million homes passing. And uh, next, the year after that, probably about 12 to 14 million homes passing. So it's a fairly rapid progression. We, our spectrum footprint's about 30 million households. And so we expect to finish the construction of those 30 million households under coverage. And it's large state blocks, so like all the state of Ohio, Nevada, some parts of Texas, all the Carolinas, upstate New York. Uh, so we expect to finish that construction probably end of 2022 would be kind of my guess. Okay. But throughout the process, we're adding customers and subscribers. To it. So you just talked about the, the team, right? And it's a team that ultimately builds great products. So, so what, like, what do you think has been kind of um, the foundation of your hiring philosophy on attracting the best talent to believe in a vision and to tackle really hard problems? Um, you know, and this is the third or fourth go around, right? So it's a core group of people that have been all together at some level. So it's sort of extension of their network. But if you look at sort of the common traits across the board, it's, you know, there's a huge, I mean, philosophically how, you know, the character of our of Starry is basically number one, customer first, and number two, bias for action, right? So basically, people that have the, Customer empathy is very important. And that whether you're a software engineer that is writing a mobile app for customer care, or you're an installer, but customer first mentality. And some people can never get there. Some people will always be, you know, more optimizing the short-term benefit, whether it's cash or or some HR policy or whatever it is. So customer first, number one. Second is bias for action. And I think woven in there is what I would call sort of, un, you know, really a level of curiosity that is, uh, if you're not a curious person, you'll just get blown away and dust here just because it's the intersection of so many disciplines. It's electrical engineering, RF engineering, software, hardware, supply chain, policy, because we deal with the government in DC and, and FCC and, and uh, you know, it's all this stuff has to come together and you may not, you, let's take the orchestra analogy. You may be a percussionist, but if you don't have curiosity about how a wind instrument works or a basic sort of inkling on, uh, to have a certain amount of professional respect for that person, you're never going to be successfully part of the orchestra. And, and so people that, you know, and another way to sort of call that is systems thinkers, right? People who can think in a, systems oriented manner as opposed to just saying, hey, my job is this. And so that's probably kind of the, the way, the things that we kind of tend to prioritize in terms of hiring and culture. What about your leadership style? Like how has that evolved? Like, you know, you've been running companies for a long time now. Um, you know, how has that evolved, you know, from when you first started out running a company? Yeah, so I think first time around, I was utterly incompetent. Um, <laughs> As, as a leader, um, because I, I, you know, you, you, there's no playbook out there, right? And, and, you know, for a lot of us that start at the younger age, there's no mentorship available. 
And the only real mentors you have around are venture capitalist types, you know, who've never actually run a company before, right? And you get the useful advice of like, well, if you think you're going to make, you know, 10 million or 20 salespeople, why don't you hire 20 more? <laughs> make women? Like the stupid shit like that, right? Um, and so I think I learned a lot from the first experience and the second and third experience. I would say the, the core thing I took away from the first one was I was a dishonest person. Not because I was trying to steal people or steal steal things, but I was not I was not honest in terms of like true motivations and, and how to really and a lot of that dishonesty was driven by fear because you have sort of this inherent fear that if you're just transparent and honest, people won't like you or people will value judge you a different way or whatever. And I think so the, the biggest takeaway or evolution, at least in my at least I think it is, has been like a level of transparency and candor that has, I think that's been incredibly useful, positive, uh, liberating in a lot of ways. And and uh, the second, I think I would say is, is, you know, I learned a lot from, I don't know if you, you know, there's a few pieces of written word that, that give you a lot of uh, guidance in certain things. And, and one of them was Reed Hastings did that deck on company culture that was a while back, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was. And, Really, so so I sort of the, the core thing I distilled out of that was this idea of context. So if you if you hire really good people that share that value set with you, and let's assume they're competent fundamentally, right, and the ability to do their job, if you provide them context, they will make good decisions more often than not. And oftentimes, we as CEOs, leaders, whatever it is, fail to provide appropriate context. And more importantly, we fail to provide context and we often provide dishonest context because of fear. And so if you apply that transparency to providing context, um, you know, my, I think we've all grown in uh, story as leaders just because, and, and, you know, I'm a terrible manager. I mean, I'm never going to be having one-on-ones with people or any of that stuff. Right. And I don't personally value them. I, I really value personal relationships with a lot of employees. I mean, so there's probably a hundred people that study that I have really close personal relationships with. Um, so, so that's probably just a rambling sort of description of, you know, style, but, but core is transparency and context and then get out of their way. Well, under uh, normal conditions, what do you, what do you like to do outside of work? Yeah. You know, golf a lot during the warm months. Um, I'm a very passionate golfer. Not very good, but same. <laughs> very same. Passionate. passionate, not very good. <laughs> um, uh, there was a time when I dropped down to like probably like a seven or so, and I'm, um, I played on Saturday and I'm back up to a ten, so it's good. Um, family, obviously, I have two kids, so that keeps you know they're teenagers and eighteen and sixteen, so that's comes with their own set of challenges with them. Uh, growing with them in a lot of ways so that you continue to maintain, provide them a lot more headroom uh, as well to, to grow. Yeah, work out, exercise, all that stuff, good group of friends. Some very close, uh, took me a long time to form really close personal sort of relationships and friendships. And I'm fortunate to say probably over the last six, seven years, uh, that that has been a really positive force in my life. Of, of sort of what I would call peers, CEO types, but really close friends and investors, but really close friends where 
there's no this side of the table or that side of the table. Everybody's got their own responsibilities. That's understood. But um, you know, it's about kind of supporting each other to 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 do their best. Very cool. Well, you're lucky to have that. I am very much so. Well, Chet, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through you know your professional history and you know the companies that you've been building. And of course, uh, I am looking forward to the day when I can get Starry at my house. <laughs> well, hopefully soon. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.